Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. My name is Vicki Vasilika, and I am the director of the section of clinical specialists and scientists here at SHP, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be chatting with Ina Lee from Harborview Medical Center, where she is a MICU clinical pharmacist, and she's going to be sharing her experience on how they have been managing their critically ill COVID-19 patients. Welcome, Ina. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for having me today. Of course. So let's start with, which I think has been one of the hot topics, managing sedation. We've had many members tell us that they're requiring uh, extended time on mechanical ventilation, often around two weeks for patients. Because of this and reports of higher metabolic needs, critical care pharmacists are finding themselves recommending higher doses and combinations of sedatives. Can you share with us what your experience has been managing these patients um, and what have been your challenges and how have you found solutions? Yeah, we've also had a similar experience with difficulty managing sedation for event management at our institution as well. Um, patients are initially started on fentanyl and propofol infusions, but it was very common to quickly escalate doses and add additional sedatives such as ketamine and midazolam. There was also concern about tachyphylaxis with fentanyl and patients were subsequently transitioned to hydromorphone infusions. And a common issue we experienced was fluid burden from the multimodal sedation, which required us to use non-standard concentrations. An example is our standard concentration of ketamine comes as a one milligram per ml bag, but our patients were on such high doses, typically maxed out at 1.2 milligrams per kilo per hour, which was a lot of volume in addition to all the other medications they were getting. So we ended up building a non-standard concentrated line item for a 10 milligram per ml back for COVID patients specifically. Um, in terms of challenges, one unique one that we came across was switching sedation on a COVID patient on cystaticurium. Um, this page, particular patient had been on propofol, but their triglyceride level had been trending up and reached almost 1,000, which required us to um, switch to midazolam. However, because this patient was paralyzed, we were not able to cross titrate like we normally would. So in this situation, we had to empirically pick a midazolam dose since there's no cross taper or equivalent dose information available. Our goal was to make sure the patient was adequately sedated and avoid underdosing, but we felt that his propofol rate of 50 micrograms per kilo per hour wasn't so high that he needed to be on the very high end of the dosing range. So based on our knowledge of the usual midazolam infusion ranges, we ended up picking a starting rate of five milligrams per hour, and the patient was eventually titrated up to seven milligrams. So um, with the changes in concentrations for uh, your COVID patients, did you uh, create new profiles in your smart pumps or were they just kind of run as basic infusions? You know, that's a great question. We have an excellent pharmacist group and we were able to uh, create line items into our IV pump system so that we didn't run into logistical issues for the nursing staff. It's always nice to have that med safety piece. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So the other thing that we've been seeing across the country is pharmacists struggling with anticoagulation. Um, can you share what you've been doing to manage coagulopathies? And then kind of a transitions of care question to follow that is, uh, 
once the patients are ready to transfer out of the ICU, what have been your anticoagulation strategies? Yeah, there has been a lot of discussion about the best way to manage coagulopathies in this patient population. The recommended VTE prophylaxis in patients with COVID at my institution is using prophylactic doses of low molecular weight heparin over heparin sub-Q. And for our very high-risk COVID patients, for example, those experiencing recurrent clotting of access devices um, like, like the central venous catheters, arterial lines, ECMO, or CRRT circuits, we increase the intensity of the anticoagulation. So if a patient is on standard intensity prophylaxis, we would then move up to the intermediate intensity prophylaxis. And to give you an example, for patients on VV ECMO, our standard heparin protocol is an ultra-low intensity protocol with an anti-10A goal of 0.1 to 0.3. But in our COVID patients, uh, we use the low-intensity protocol, which we typically reserve for our VA ECMO patients, uh, that has a slightly higher anti-10A goal of 0.3 to 0.5. Um, fortunately, we haven't. We've had surprisingly low number of VT rates, and it's under continuous review. As for transitions of care, once the patients are ready to transfer out of the ICU, they are maintained on the correct management that they are typically on during their ICU stay. Um, as for the actual transition of care outside of the hospital, I don't. I'm not that familiar with it, but my understanding sure. is, it's like. My understanding is it's reasonable to continue VT prophylaxis, I believe, up to 45 days out. Perfect. Um, so I feel like COVID-19 has presented us with many unique clinical scenarios. Uh, you know, COVID toes, uh, the, uh, the uh, Kawasaki-like syndrome we're seeing in pediatrics. So um, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the unique clinical scenarios that you might have seen. Um, and then, you know, outside of sedation and anticoagulation, um, have you had any other drug and dosing challenges? Yes. I think a big difference when it came to managing these COVID patients really was facilitating the use of medications that had not been rigorously studied for COVID. No, there's currently no FDA-approved treatments. And the, really, the treatment recommendations came from preliminary data and as you're aware, in our day-to-day -day practice, we really strive to practice evidence-based medicine. But for COVID, we were you know, giving treatments gathered from data with ongoing small randomized trials in China and Europe. So one of the things that I really appreciated was that uh, our hospital created a multidisciplinary team consisting of representatives from cardiology, critical care, infectious disease, hematology, and our amazing infectious disease pharmacists to create a COVID committee that, you know, developed their institutional guidelines. And I think something that us pharmacists experience frequently is that we have to sometimes act as gatekeepers of medications, you know, depending on the restrictions and, you know, availability of the drug. But in our institution, there was a central group that made very clear inclusion and exclusion criteria when it came to using these medications. And um, for example, uh, when we initially started treating COVID patients, we were giving hydroxychloroquine to everyone based on the information we had at the time. But as you know, routine hydroxychloroquine is no longer recommended um, based on the data from uncontrolled studies in France and China, which suggested limited utility and even potential harm with the lack of benefit. 
And at my institution, we also started utilizing tocilizumab for cytokine storm pretty early on. Um, and we already had some institutional experience with this use for cytokine release syndrome after CAR-T therapy. The leading theory at the time was that a profound inflammatory response was due to cytokine storm resulting from the host response to the viral infection was responsible for progression to ARDS, circulatory collapse and multi-organ failure. The data has subsequently not shown a clear benefit and until more data is available, it's used in patients with severe life-threatening COVID infections is no longer recommended at our institution. And currently, almost all of our severely ill patients are now receiving remdesivir and convalescent plasma unless they have contraindications. And then as for the dexamethasone recovery trial, our patients are initially hesitant to change practice just based on the press release information alone. Mm -hmm. But after the detailed study was published earlier this week, um, we started using dexamethasone in our critically ill patients. And then finally, I think something we could all relate to is managing patient care with drug shortage issues. Yeah. During the initial wave of COVID emissions, there was concern about potential critical medication shortages because all the COVID ICU patients were on the same combination of drugs for sedation, paralysis, and analgesia. So a provider work group consisting of pharmacy and critical care providers was created and work together to proactively diversify medication use to avoid drug outages based on anticipated shortages. And really thanks to the efforts of this group, we were able to avoid drug shortages during the peak COVID crisis. Yeah, the drug shortages have been um, interesting to, to see, especially from like a supply chain management point. Yeah. So now we're about, what, three months out from mm -hmm. the initial surge. I was just wondering if you could kind of walk us through your timeline um, at your institution. Clearly, you had more pressing concerning issues maybe at the beginning than you would have now. So what if, were your initial clinical concerns versus now three months out? What have they changed? Are they the same? Um, what are you concerned about looking forward? You know, the thing that we hear a lot is, uh, you know, this isn't over yet. Uh, we're going to see a second surge. So um, I'd just be interested to hear those kind of those three snaps in time, uh, what you're thinking about. Yeah, our top concerns at the beginning of the outbreak was really treating the unknown. There was no guidelines or studies to rely on. And our, we were using treatments based on, you know, small clinical trials and oftentimes with con conflicting data between the different studies. And secondly, institutionally, our second concern was balancing the needs of nursing safety with patient care. Um, initially, we understood the risks that bedside nurses were facing in treating these patients. So we tried to minimize going in and out of the rooms from a medication standpoint as much as we could by doing simple things like adjusting the timing of the medications. We were also very aggressive about titrating off insulin infusions since these required Q1 hour monitoring. And we also changed our hospital policy and made patient-specific insulin vials available for COVID, COVID rooms. Um, and really the care of these patients was a team effort and we all wanted to do our part to keep our team members safe. And finally, I think our own safety was a concern of ours. Um, there was concern about occupational COVID exposure since we are essential workers. During the initial phase where we were getting more COVID patients, our clinical pharmacists were unable to do social distancing in our shared work room due to space constraints and universal masking wasn't enforced at the time. 
our inpatient clinical pharmacy manager really advocated on our behalf to move some of our clinical services offsite while still providing the same level of care we would normally have had we been in-house. And we were able to do this by setting up Zoom meetings and participating in rounds with the team in real time, complete order verification from home, and by being available during the day via phone and pager. We also had at least one clinical pharmacist from the ICU medicine surgical service in-house from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. to respond to codes and any issues that required an in-person interactions. And really, all of us are really grateful to be given that opportunity. Our current, my current uh, clinical concerns, I think they're along the same lines. Uh, for now, like uh, the initial COVID patients who are in the recovery phase, we're in the process of weaning off the high doses of sedatives and analgesics, as well as main, uh, managing persistent agitation and delirium. Um, secondly, there's still no established guidelines. <laughs> there's still no definitive treatment. And it's really about supportive care and access to remdesivir is still limited. And then also finally, it's our own safety as, um, as well. We've had patients that test negative and then test positive a few days later. And then in time between the first and the second test, the patients are you know, off isolation and patient care providers are not taking the special precautions we would normally um, when interacting these patients, uh, putting them at risk for potential exposure. So you've mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, you talked about how you had a comprehensive team that made group therapy decisions. Mm-hmm. You talked about how you have a pharmacist that still responds to codes. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to see um, how have your roles evolved within these teams as the number of patients increased and have you made any changes from for trauma and code response? Yeah, during the peak COVID period, our roles within the medical teams evolved in the sense that our responsibilities became broader and everyone worked together to provide patient care in such a challenging time. And as expected, the medical ICU service experienced larger than usual census, while other surgical and medicine teams saw a significant drop in their census. We were um, able to reallocate our work, and most of us at one point helped cover a service that we normally wouldn't. So for example, our neuro ICU and Burns Pete's ICU pharmacists all cover the COVID ICU service at some point, and as well as picking up some internal medicine floor services as well. As for the code response, a COVID-19 code blue med kit was created in order to conserve supplies since any meds taken into a COVID positive room had to be discarded. And it consisted of a couple of epi syringes, calcium chloride, sodium bicarb, and dextro syringes with the intention that it would be taken into the room prior to the pharmacist's arrival. And then during the code, our protocol was to position the code carts outside the isolation rooms and pass through meds that are needed. And pharmacists remained outside of the rooms unless specifically called in. So uh, this has clearly been a stressful time for everybody. I'm mm-hmm. curious to see um, what you've been doing to maintain your well-being and resilience. Yeah, I'm really lucky to have a really great support system at home and at work. Luckily, my fiance works in healthcare, so we were able to be together and haven't had to socially distance from each other. And, you know, some of my closest friends are fellow pharmacists at Harborview. So it's been really nice to lean on them for support because we're all going through this together and can really empathize with each other 100%. 
And then as we know, one of the most important ways to avoid the spread of COVID-19 is to make sure that you are washing your hands for 20 seconds. And a good way to get to that 20 seconds is to sing or hum a song in your head. So I'm just curious to, uh, as to what your song is that you use to wash your hands. Yeah, I actually had, I just actually read this by my clinical manager. <laughs> Her recommendation was to sing happy birthday twice. That is a popular one. And believe it or not, another one that's been very popular is Baby Shark. <laughs> baby Shark. Yeah. I, I don't know that song. <laughs> it's like Baby Shark. Doo, doo, doo. It's like a catchy, like, uh, it's very catchy. <laughs> okay. I'd have to look that up. <laughs> yes. So that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Ina for joining us discuss COVID-19, ASHP's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. I'd like to share some of those resources with you now. If you haven't already, please check out ASHP's COVID-19 Resource Center found at ashp.org, which serves as a clearinghouse for more information on COVID-19 for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, and resources for patients. ASHP has detailed policy recommendations for policymakers. Ask your legislators to support ASHP's COVID-19 recommendations by sending an email using the Online Advocacy Center at advocate.ashp.org. Be kind to your mind. Headspace is now the exclusive meditation mindfulness app for ASHP members. With Headspace, you can learn the life-changing skills of meditation and mindfulness in just a few minutes a day. Studies show that meditation helps reduce stress and burnout in healthcare professionals while boosting happiness and compassion. Visit ashp.org and search Headspace to find out how you can add this to your smart device at no charge as a benefit of membership. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast as we'll be posting more lessons learned, practice, and therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Vicki Vasilika, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.